Pastor Steve, I suggest if you want us to remain seated during offering, you've got you to throw out an innocuous song out there, buddy. How can we stay in our seats when it's victory in Jesus? That's just not possible. And especially the, uh, the Caribbean boys in front of us here this morning. When you're at an Israel Houghton, Kirk Franklin concert, you can't stay seated the next day. These guys are texting me during the, saying the only thing missing last night is you and the Irish fling. And um, talking to me like KK's all in. The dancing is going well. I don't even want to think about what that would look like. Anyway, <clears throat> it is good to give our best praise to the one who is truly worthy of it, our great God who has done so much and does so much for us. And I know you love him, and it's good that we're together this morning to lift up his name in praise and adoration and exaltation. Let's pray together. Father, as we launch into this text this morning, we need your help. We need your strength, your guidance, your superintending. We need you to give us eyes to see, grant us unusual insight and awareness of the things around us. I pray, Father, that you would give us a heart that is open to your message to us. I pray, Father, that we might not try to edit out what you're wanting to tell us. But I pray, Father, that we will be willing to accept what you have without excuses. And that we will be honest before you as the Holy Spirit of God probes our hearts today. As you instruct us from your word, you have words to say to us this morning, Lord. And I pray that you would uh, help us to put aside all the um, preconceived ideas and distractions and all the things that we come often to the text with, and that this morning we would uh, present ourselves to you as living sacrifices. I pray, Lord, that you would grant us a deep sense of urgency as we consider the world that we live in, the world that we're raising our families in, and the impact of the intersection of those two things. Lord, I pray, I know you have instruction for us, and some of it's hard to take. But Father, we recognize that you have the absolute moral authority and ownership rights and lordship position in our lives that gives you every right to ask of us what is hard in ourselves to do, but through you and your power and your help, something all of us can do. So would you uh, open up your word to us, Lord, and open up Um, our hearts that we might willingly receive what you have for Jesus' sake. Amen. As I was embarking on the journey of this sermon this week, the first thing that caught my attention because the section that we're going to look at is Nehemiah 2, 10 through 20. The first thing that caught my attention I think sets up the rest of the concerns of of this section this morning. It's in verse 10. And it says, They were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And as I thought and just meditated upon that statement for a bit, it occurred to me that that very phrase describes the scene and the setting that you and I are are living in. Because if we were to take and make this applicational, uh, we could easily say that it, they, the people of the world, are very much disturbed that someone has come to promote what matters to God or what matters to the people of God. And so it establishes immediately that there is a grand opposition to everything that's right and holy and good. That's not new, 
that's old and continues on through the ages. And the battle that your family is in, whether you signed up for it or not, is for power, for influence, and for total personal autonomy from God. And anybody who gets in the way of those things is shouted down, rebuked, mocked, persecuted. Sanballat and Tobiah, the two names that are represented as those opposing, are really stand-ins for the shared values of those who oppose everything that is holy. And if you're paying any attention at all to what's going on around you, you know that that the things of God are being reclassified as archaic, old-fashioned, and out of touch. And so it is a shuffling off of the relevance of God so that the culture can get on with what it, how it wants to live. It's a new tact. I, I heard it um, dramatically demonstrated this past week on CNN while I was watching a news article about the proposal among Boy Scouts of America to include gays within the organization. And one of the proponents of the, of the movement used as his only, ex, as his only um, um, case for the fact that society should allow a, a change is that this is a different time. It wasn't about morality. It wasn't about the, the, the issues of raising children and, and what might be good for them or bad for them or anything like that. It was the simple defense of this is a different time. And you are being fed that, your children are being fed that constantly. That you, if you serve the living God and if you stand for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, are out of touch with the times. And none of us wants to be out of touch. We pride ourselves in the right form of that, I think, on being relevant. If anybody wants to be, believe they're relevant, the church of Jesus Christ wants to believe that we bring a relevant message to the people of our time. So it's an interesting um, attack strategy of the enemy to now pit God against relevance. God is being deemed irrelevant by our culture around us. And so um, God's counterculture, countercultural call upon us in light of this is that we would raise up leadership of biblical proportion. And I'm not simply talking about a few church leaders. I'm talking about all of you, and I'm talking particularly this morning about heads of homes. I'm talking about the men who are here. This is now a time, a call from God to raise up leadership in your hearts of biblical proportion. And it's that I wish to address this morning. It's time for a spiritual walkabout. Now, I want to mention to you that Christian leadership and as you know, uh, there are many books written in comp- as companions to the book of Nehemiah, which identify it as a book on leadership skills. And I will grant you that there is a, a wealth of leadership uh, wisdom and skill within the book of Nehemiah and the way he carried himself and the way God fashioned him and developed him. But if that's all you get out of the book of Nehemiah, it's like the chocolate Easter bunny. It's very nice on the outside and looks very delicious, but it's all hollow on the inside. And I can remember my first Easter bunny as a little kid thinking that I was getting something that I wasn't getting. I mean, when you look at that little baby, that little bunny thing, it's like, ah, look at the chocolate hair. And then all of a sudden, you crunch it and it's like, what happened to all my chocolate? And that's what happens if you just simply use this as a leadership training manual. And I want to say this about leadership as it is applied to the scriptures here. Christian leadership isn't just about leading and principles of leadership. There's plenty of that to go around. It's about leading people into the heart of God. That's what what sets apart Christian leadership from other leadership models. And God isn't about hip, and he's not about relevant, and he's not about sexy. God is about, uh, certainly not at the expense of, uh, of, of purity of devotion 
and not at the expense of retention of exclusive, timeless truth. I would submit to you that truth is timeless. There is no, in terms of the moral argument on the landscape of our culture, the argument this is a different time does not apply ever. And it requires of us as leaders in places of influence, and I'm, I'm calling all of you to the, 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 the role of leader in the place of influence you have, it, it is a time for all of us to understand that in spite of the fact that there are a great number of people who find that very objectionable in your life. For many of us, I think we're asking the questions, how did we get so far down this ruinous road uh, so quickly? But I, I think a more troubling question for us has to do with how deep are our own hands in this moral mess. There's no point in us lamenting the painful immorality of our culture if we take no stock of our own lives, if we pay no attention to our own hearts. The point of the Bible is constantly to call God's people back to the way God wants you to live, wants us to live. And we struggle with that. We fail at that. We sin regularly. But it doesn't change the fact that God is constantly calling us back to a higher standard, to, to one that we can live through the power of God's Spirit working through us. And so I would submit to you that we need to ask questions like, how tainted have our children's hearts really become as a result of the culture around us? How ruined are the walls in our homes, in our families, and how wide open are the doors to their hearts and their minds? How wide open are the doors to your heart and your mind? I would say uh, with pretty strong confidence that the book of Nehemiah is about the state of God's holy temple, the Western church in a postmodern culture. It was uh, the state of affairs in that day, but it mirrors the state of affairs that you and I are raising our children, our grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews, whatever, within. And so I want to present to you from this text, and we're going to read it in a moment, five questions when neglect has finally become no longer tolerable among us. And I really hope that we're getting to that place. I really hope that somewhere in your heart, you're finally nearly at the place, and I would love for it to be today, where you say, enough. Enough. I'm going to draw a line in the sand today, and from now on, things are going to be different, and I'm not going back. So um, look at the text with me. 2.10-20. When Sanballat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. In other words, the entourage of Nehemiah had ridden into Jerusalem. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts for me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls or inspecting carefully the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate in the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up to the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. 
So they began this good work. But when Senbalet and Senbalet the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We as servants will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. This is the word of the Lord. Now, where to start? There has been a pretty significant head start of neglect, if we're honest, in many of our situations. While we were snoozing, the culture has been transitioning at exponential, at an exponential rate. And um, so I want to um, suggest to you that we ought to start where Nehemiah started. Where's that? Well, it says he came to Jerusalem and stayed there for three days and set out during the night. What does that look like? What does that say to me? Well, the first question I think it says to me, is there not a place for quiet? I think it's extremely important to note here that uh, he was about to embark upon a reshaping of significant proportion. Something that had been left abandoned for decades upon decades. And so it seems to me that, that uh, with this time, although we don't know this for sure, but based on what we do know of the character of Nehemiah, I'm convinced that he took this time to be with God. Before racing in and doing anything, I, I think he sat down for those three days, adjusted a little bit to the time change from Persia maybe, but God himself reorientated to the magnitude of the God that he serves. He got himself in the right place, in the right space with God. He, he reestablished um, his feeble knees and his, his quivering hands before God, recognizing that he was a servant of the God of the universe and was representing him and had been called to a holy mission and had realized that there was a significant life-changing moment that was set before him. And needed to establish in his heart, his own heart, that he was all in. Before, as he rode into town with the cavalry and everything had been fine to that point, the first thing that hits is opposition. And I'm, I'm convinced that he had to re sit down before God and say, do you really want me to do this? Am I really your man? Are you really calling me to this? Is this really the moment? Uh, and, and he needed his heart to be reshaped all over again. And the reason I believe this is because of this, a big time overhaul of your heart must happen behind the scenes before anything memorable will fire up in the world around you. It has to start in your heart. Your heart has to come alive. You need to take time on purpose in this incredibly hectic, busy life that each of you live to, take, to carve out time with God that is meaningful and rich and seeks to plumb the depths of the vision of God that he has for you. You need to take time to think deeply about the world around you, your family, what's going on. You need to think deeply and pray to God about God and you. Where are you at yourselves? Where is your heart, your life? Uh, the, the, this moment in your life, where are you at with God? And I'm, I'm encouraging you to set this apart and do this now. What now, God, do you want from me? What do you want me to want, Lord? Time for honest soul searching. To ask the questions. Where am I with God? What am I doing with what God has given to me? How is it with those in my watch, my wife, my kids, my marriage, the workplace, my neighborhood, my club, the, the places that I have impact and influence? How is it in those places? And then to allow the Holy Spirit of God to do his probing work into the deep hiding places of your life, the places that you don't show anybody. 
The places that if you were totally transparent and honest to God and to each of us this morning would show some cracks. Cracks in your own wall that you have cosmetically taken care of Sunday by Sunday. But you know they're there. And the mortar work keeps getting chipped away at until the wall is going to lose all of its integrity if you don't do something about it. And you know you're not growing. You know you're not being fruitful. You know that a lot of the things you're doing are dying. It's time for all of us. Coming off that powerful series in Galatians... To say, now what, God, when we understand about the nature of the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And what what you've granted to us and the benefits that can be ours. The Bible talks much about hard-heartedness. I I think uh, when I I try to think about what hard-heartedness really looks like in a practical sense. I I think it's the, there are places in our hearts that God isn't even allowed to penetrate. God, you and I have talked about this before, and I'm not letting you in. I'm not letting you touch me there. I refuse. See, because I think of somebody who's soft-hearted, they can be touched. They can be moved by emotion, and they can be moved by hurts and concerns and, and issues and reality. And if we have hard places in our heart that God can't penetrate, he can't get his message to us. We don't want to hear his message anymore. And only you know if you have those calloused pieces of your heart. He says, I'm not letting God in there. I'm not letting God through. I'm not going to be here. I'm not willing to hear that. If you have places like that, there will be things that I'm going to say to you this morning that you won't receive. Things that you need to receive. The, the, The other alternative is that you've got fat hearts. Fat hearts that that aren't filled with the Holy Spirit, but they're filled with all kinds of stuff and things. And and because there are so many things that are actually working all right, saying, I don't really need anything more of God. I'm good with what I have. I don't want any more of God. I I want just that much because that's working good for me. It's possible that if that's the state that you're in, that you're not able to take the next steps that are very important and key to having some radical transformation and reform take place in your own life and the life of the people you influence. Now, I want you to know that as I look at Nehemiah, I realize that he wasn't embarking upon this leadership project just because of insecurity or survival among the people of God. And certainly not in in his own life. He already had a pretty good gig going in Persia. This was all about a perceived call that God had reached into his heart and was fanning into flame. And and because of that, it, it it wasn't about security and survival. He, he labels it in verse 17 what it was all about. This is a disgrace. It's a disgrace that God's people aren't experiencing the abundant living that Christ has granted to us or wants to grant to us. We need to, in our hearts, be frustrated with where we fail God and, and call it what it is, a disgrace. It's not just about getting ahead in life or being perceived as better Christians among one another. It's about the glory of God. And so the second question, is there not a call? Is there not a call in your life with respect to the glory of God and and what God could do in your life? Keep in mind that Nehemiah had sung the great victory songs like we sang this morning as they were going to worship, as as they were moving toward worship. The great psalms that talk about the glories of Jerusalem, the place that God had chosen in that day to have his name reside. Now, your Bibles aren't laid out in chronological order. You all know that. So you say, hey, Psalms is after Nehemiah. I don't think he got to the Psalms. Yeah, he did. The Psalms actually are before. 
And say, yeah, we know that, Rick. Okay, good. I just wanted to make sure. But, you know, Nehemiah had heard psalms like Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. And then he was looking at Jerusalem. And it's beat down walls. And it's burned out gates. And people mocking the people of God. In the city of our God, his holy mountain, it is beautiful in its loftiness. The joy of the whole earth. He's staring at it. Saying, whatever happened to that? When David gazed at this place, it was the, it was the boast of the universe. Because God was, God's glory was resident there. And that's what our lives are designed to be by the indwelling presence of the living Christ as temples of the living God. Behold our lives, the city of God, the joy of all the earth. Behold your family on that street, the city of God, the joy of all the earth. It ought to burden our hearts if that's not the story of our lives and our houses and our family. Behold your workstation, the city of God, the joy of all the earth. Is there not a call? You will never seek to address what is wrong until you first sense the loss of what is right. C.S. Lewis was making a very, very astute observation when he said something to this effect because I won't claim to be exactly quoting him. But I think I'm close. Too many Christians are satisfied playing in mud puddles Because they have no vision of a day at the ocean. Do you have any vision of what you could be in Christ? Of what your family could be in Christ? Of what your house could be in Christ in that neighborhood? Of what you could be in the workplace in Christ's name? That's why Nehemiah said, what my God put in my heart to do in Jerusalem. That the glory of God might be manifest once again. The city of the great king, the joy of all the earth. Where in your lives is the lordship of Christ jeopardized? His right to totally own you. Where has the joy of your salvation being robbed. It's such a waste when Christians so easily roll over and disadvantage themselves. It's such a waste. To trade live big, maximum abundance for the deadening destructiveness of sin. So, The moniker in your life should be what has God put in my heart to do for, and you fill in the blank. Something that you thought should be better than it is. That you were expecting to be different. I've got stuff going on in my life. I've got the blanks filled in. Maybe you're not all in at all. If you're half-hearted about your faith just as some social segment of your life, you've joined a war with the approach the U.S. had in Vietnam. All you'll have to show for it is body bags. Maybe you haven't been paying much attention and letting life just unfold. Can I suggest there's an important third question? Is there not a cause? What does Nehemiah do? Verse 13 to 16. He takes a stroll. Does an inspection. Goes and looks. 
It gives us there some historic identification of the walls in Jerusalem. And uh, based on the walls that he names there and the route that he took, he traveled some one and a half to two and a half miles or two to four kilometers, whichever is most visual for you. Looking at the state of affairs in Jerusalem. And I want, I want you to know this morning that it wasn't a few minor bricks out of order. And I'm not sure where we get the brick idea, although, yeah, we, I guess it's my fault. There weren't little bricks like that. We're talking about gigantic, hewn-from-rock boulders that had been knocked down and had rolled themselves down into the valley, the Hinnom Valley or wherever, the Kidron Valley. This was not going to be a project that you could call over your friends on a Saturday, give them some Red Bull and tell them to bring a post hole digger. This was not this. When he looked at this thing, he realized this is a disgrace. This is an immense project. Decades have gone by and nobody's touched this. Your life might have been in that state for a long time. You, you may have been ignoring the reality of your family for some years. You take this walk around, this challenge to inspect what's going on in your own heart and the hearts of the people in your influence you may find there's some massive boulders laying in the valley for a long time. Is there not a cause? Jerusalem lies in ruins. The gates have been burned with fire. A fire unattended will die out, you know, and a building unmaintained will fall into disrepair. Nothing spiritually great just happens. God saved my kids. He can take care of them. You kidding me? He's perfectly capable. But that's not the way he's established things. When was the last time you, and I'm talking to fathers or or leaders in families, if you're a single mom in your family, when was the last time you made a serious inspection of the spiritual state of your family? And so, so much so that you actually know what's going on. A scriptural walkabout. Because the anti-biblical values of Canada are shouting your family down. God has gone out of style, in case you hadn't noticed. As far as the people in our culture where we're living are concerned, God was a superstition of a bygone era. And that's the norm thinking, normal thinking of our culture. Portrayed by the media, portrayed by education, portrayed by entertainment. Not portrayed by every educator. Not portrayed by every entertainer. Not portrayed by every journalist. But the culture of those industries... The new normal, therefore, is a devalued life. The culture of death, you know, has been named by so many. That's what we live in. And sexual confusion. And the agenda, although the culture doesn't really understand this, we should. The agenda is to deconstruct the Christian mind. The Christian worldview. It's not a human agenda. It's a satanic agenda. His MO is steal, kill, destroy. Christians, the things of God. To accommodate the desires of the culture, which are only too willing to embrace. Whether it's the lawmakers, the educators, or religious leaders. You know this is true, that if you see something abnormal portrayed as normal long enough, it begins to reprogram your mind. Which ought to put shivers up and down every mom and dad's spine. If what is abnormal is portrayed as normal long enough, 
it will begin to reprogram even the most faithful mind. I would challenge parents today. Parents of junior hires, senior hires, young adults. You check this out for yourselves. You start asking your kids some questions and see if the abnormal is not becoming somewhat normal to the average young adolescent mind, Christian mind. Check out whether or not your kids are beginning to think that people should have rights to choice with pregnancies. Check out with your Christian kids if, if, they don't, if they aren't starting to think that people should have rights of choice with sexual expression. You check out with your own kids to see if, uh, if they're not calling into question Christ as the only way to God. You start checking out with your kids about marriage and see if some of them aren't beginning to think that marriage should be open to whomever and however. You check out with some of your kids what they think about authority and see if some of them aren't thinking that authority is bad. You, you check out with your kids what they're thinking about the organized church and see if some of them aren't thinking that it should be avoided. You, you, you check out with your kids what they think about evolution and see if whole scale numbers of them aren't thinking that it's true. Do your own test. Check your own kids out. I know what I'm talking about because I know what your kids are thinking. I shape these questions on the basis of what I know about your kids. And my kids. What area of Christian distinctiveness are in jeopardy in our homes? What medium of the enemy's ideas and propaganda and values are granted free passage into the heart and minds of your family? That's the doors we're talking about. These are the walls we're talking about. How are your walls and doors? Well, I don't interfere. Well, then you're guilty of child endangerment. We wrap their little bodies in bubble wrap. And then we let their minds take car rides with demonic strategies and strangers. We've got whole hordes of little great gazoos riding around in plastic tricycles with great gigantic helmets and elbow pads for fear their little bodies will collide with a sidewalk. And we allow the internet, the TV, Facebook, and any number of satanic strangers to drive little Miss Daisy's mind anywhere it wants. We make sure they never miss a power skating lesson. But make excuses when time for soul attention never comes. Dads, let me ask you a question. Maybe the dads who should hear this aren't here this morning. Do you give more attention to their athletics than their souls? Listen to me carefully. Soccer won't get them home. And you all know I enjoy athletics. I'm calling on all of us for a scriptural walkabout in our families. Dads, are you taking your provider protector status seriously? Taking it all the way? The Bible says, guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. You, you know what? They don't need the helmets and the elbow pads on the plastic tricycle. 
They need a helmet over their hearts and elbow pads over their minds. What are they doing, Dad? What are your kids doing right now? What are they watching? Who are they playing with? Who are their friends? What are their friends about? What do their friends think like? What do their friends tell them? Do they know God's word? Do they pray? Do you pray? When was the last time you did a thorough audit? Do you give them free and open access to everything? There should be no privacy. Now listen, I, I know I'm talking to you as a guy who's raised some kids. So I'm not talking theory to you this morning. Do I think that, do you think that I, I'm naive enough to think that I knew everything? You all know my kids better than that. But it wasn't because I didn't do everything possible to know everything. There should be no privacy with internet or TV or Facebook. I got on Facebook first so I could be a spy. I'll fully admit that. There's no way my kids were going to have some sort of private dialogue thing going on that I didn't know about. Could they have some sort of other names? Come to think of it, yeah, one of them does. But I learned that quickly too. Norman. you got to get up earlier than that to fool me. PlayStation, game content, Twitter. You say to me, well, what about trust? You'll destroy their little psyche. Trust. Do you trust your kids to uh, prescribe medicine to themselves? You trust your kids to uh, write their... Their food schedule and menu? Do you trust your kids to, to determine their little daily schedule? Because I know if you do, they'll write school right off the schedule. I know Daryl will for sure. <laughs> do you give your seven year old keys to your car? To your gun case for the rednecks? They probably do. <laughs> I'm talking to you this morning, beloved, about a word, and it's called parenting. That's what this word is about parenting. We shouldn't be complaining about the educational system or the values or the curriculum if we have no censorship in our home, no biblical curriculum in our houses, no guardianship over those who we influence ourselves. The church and the school can't fix what the home wrecks. Lynn and I determined that we would do the best we could to make the home incredibly spiritually strong so it could stand up to the value systems that were going to be around. Now I ask you as we transition into question four is there no collective courage to confront? Our own spiritual complacency and every unbiblical thief stealing our hearts from the Lord? Wickedness won't go away quietly. I see our time is gone. It's the most bizarre thing happened to me, Steve. I'm looking at the clock, and I'm realizing, 11.30. I got all the time in the world. Sorry, guys. Let me just say to you, I want to urgently say to you, That wickedness is not going to find its way out of your home on its own. And what I like about Nehemiah is he said here, look at the mess we're in. Verse 17. 
it's not you and me and you, me and preaching at you. It's us, we. This is a mess we're in together. I love your kids. I love your families. I love your marriages. You love mine. We, we got a good thing going here. We care about the things of God in each other's lives. Look at the mess we're in. So let me conclude this way. The fifth question is this. Is there no willingness to work? You know what I like, love about these people? When they saw the mess and they heard about God's greatness and what God had done in them and around them, they said, let's build. Let's rebuild. And that's my prayer this week that, that would happen in the hearts of our people here. Let's rebuild. Let's, let's take the spiritual walkabout. Let's do this. Let's get serious about this stuff. They strengthen their hands with prayer. Praying determines the quality of our working, just as the working reflects the quality of our praying, J.I. Packer. Praying is the real work. Don't just go and blow everything up, Dad. Plan and pray and search God's word and pray and plan and search God's word some more. Can I, invi- can I suggest to you that you invite the kids, invite everybody in, invite the whole family into this plan. What are we going to do? Look at the walls. Look at where we've got sloppy about some doors. I'm, I'm not talking about legalism here. I am talking about honestly, seriously walking spiritually before God. Legalism always goes after the wrong things. We're talking about the things that are ruining the hearts and minds of our, ourselves and our children. Invite them in. Ask your seven-year-old, what, what do you think is going on in this house or around here that isn't honoring to God? Or, or where do you think we're, we're allowing some things to influence our, us or shape us that are displeasing to God? Or where, where have we missed out in, in a commitment and a discipline to the things of God? They'll tell you, well, going to church once a month isn't really cutting it, Dad. Let's join in on all of this. In seven weeks, Nehemiah and his people got done what had been waffling around for nearly a century. So there's hope for me. There's hope for you. First things in the primary call in your life, Dad, is every man's entrusted with a family. People you have influence and impact over. And the question, the important question, is what did you do to build enduring faith into your first team? With Pastor Steve's grace, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up. Let me just say to you this morning that Every dollar you ever make or accumulate, every degree that you ever are granted, every award that you ever are presented with is just the stuff to get by through the days of this life. But the shrewd investors are banking it all on eternity. And um, As I think about that reality and what God has impassioned in my own heart, for me, all of the effort with respect to that, the things of God, will be worth it if three very special children to me cross the finish line. And I want to I leave with you this thought. That if each one of us, with a passion, committed ourselves to this journey in a new and fresh and committed way, and were to influence and impact the next generation in the way we ought, if we would only preserve through the passion and, and grace of God our own children, every single church in this world, would be a growing church. If we only preserved our children, not a 
And, and when, when we take the survey stats of all of North America, the churches aren't growing. We've got the best evangelistic efforts that the world has ever known. We've got the media saturation for Christianity like never before. So why aren't we growing? I would submit to you that if God's people, parents, would take their role role seriously and passionately commit to spiritual walkabouts and building walls and closing doors, the church of North America would explode in growth. Not only will our children be saved and go on to serve the Lord, their children will be as well because, because we'll have laid down for them a legacy of effectiveness because we decided that anything less than that's a disgrace to the glory of God. Our Father, I pray as you continue to lead us deeper into this book that you will implant in us a new passion, a new resolve, Lord God, this is not everybody else's problem. This is my problem. I need to know what are the ruined walls of neglect. I need to to see what doors have been burned. Lord, we are gathered in, in a solemn moment before you. This is not going to be a human pep talk. Oh God, unless you do this, it won't get done. But Lord, I believe you're behind this. I believe you're for this. And I believe that you are going to grow your people's hearts. Even today, to say this is it, the line in the sand. I'm going to know, I'm the father of this home. I am going to take my responsibility seriously. I am going to know my children I'm going to provide and protect for them, protect them. In Jesus' name, amen.